So I've been uh, giving this church a challenge this summer, a holy challenge to listen a little more carefully, a little more clearly to the voice of creation. The, the God of the universe, the one who created this all, reveals himself through his, his word, his scriptures, uh, and also his scriptures say he reveals himself through the creation, his created world. And so how can we, especially in a, in a part of the world where, where, where we get just a few uh, a little window of summer, how can uh, in the summer we can open our ears a little more? So um, this, this last week, I, I sort of took up the challenge a little bit myself, and I spent three nights and four days out at Quetico canoeing in the backcountry, which was amazing and awesome. And it's, uh, I took along a person who I knew would save my life if I, if I needed it. So highly, they were highly skilled in life-saving techniques, and um, I wouldn't go out with anyone else but them. Um, I, I, I like the outdoors. I'm, I have some skill out there, but when it comes to backcountry and big ferocious beasts and such, I, I clam up. Uh, the most amazing thing that I saw out there, I, I just have to tell you, I've never seen anything like this. I feel like I was on a Discovery Channel, like in person. It was the last day we were canoeing back to our car. It was a, the waters were like glass, calm. Uh, the, there was huge, towering, you know, pine trees and all sorts of trees around. And there was this great splashing up ahead in the water, and we were like, "What is splashing? What is it? We're like, this is it? We're going to get to see a moose, you know? It's maybe it's taking a bath, getting out." Well, we come up, and there was three loons splashing around in this amazing mating ritual. No joke. Like there was this. There's two. Must have been two guys and a lady. And the guys were like flapping out of the water, like all the way, showing off. And the lady was just sort of like running, like running away from them. You know, it was amazing. So, so they would flap and then one would chase them and then they would just fly across the surface of the water and like they couldn't catch up with this, with this lady. She was playing hard to get. And, um, and, and this went on and on and on. And, and then, so I'd never seen anything like this. It was, it was actually really amazing. Just, like, I don't know, have you ever seen any animals in mating ritual? It's, it's amazing. Um, it's like this, this, this is more than TV. And then as we went beyond that to the, to the place, there was a few beavers out there and we hadn't seen any beavers and they were just having the time of their life. Like there was, I don't think there was any purpose to what they were doing, but they were coming and you know, as they do, they come out of the water and splash their tails down and a big like cannonball comes out. And so there's three beavers just doing that. It's amazing. And I, um, yeah, in those moments, you're like, you get out there among the wild things and uh, it does something to you. If you have your ears and eyes open to the beauty and the, like that, none of that was made for, for humans, you know, like, like none of that has any point to us, but it was just, they were delighting in their habitat and their natural territory and it was beautiful. So uh, I, I've been kind of advancing this, um, oh, this theme. Can you clicked on the uh, slide there? There we go. I've been advancing this theme um, throughout the whole summer so far. We're exploring these things. So if we're going to be deeply Christian people, I've been claiming, we must come to revere the creation. Uh, we must see in creation something sacred. And as we do so, our pridefulness, the thing in us that becomes prideful about humans, as we all are aware of, must then grow smaller. Uh, 
So as I talk about this as creation being sacred, you know, I'm not talking about worshiping creation. Christians don't worship creation. We see creation as uh, the, the, um, the thing which comes out of a creator, of the creator God's mind and into reality. So I'm not talking about worshiping creation, but I'm also not talking about dominating creation, which oftentimes we can do. We can dominate it. And so somewhere in the middle of all these spaces, there's some reverence to be found, and it does us a world of good if we can get there. Psalm 65 talks about uh, this in a beautiful way. You, God, visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with richness. The meadows clothe themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They should sing they should sing and shout, should be, they should sing and shout together for joy. I love this. I mean, imagine this, the creator of the universe putting a crown on the earth. You crown the year with your bounty. There's, there's, a, there's a royalty, a sacredness to the world around us. And I love this idea of God's wagon tracks overflowing with richness. I mean, he visits the earth and waters it. I mean, this is what the psalmist is saying. God comes down and takes care of this place, whether we see it or not. And if we're going to catch him in the act of farming, we've got to see his wagon tracks, which is the, the bounty, the abundance that comes after him. It's, the, it's his tracks that, that he leaves behind. And so here in this, in this creation, God is not far off in Saturn or somewhere. He's here. And um, the idea of new creation, which Christians can get on about, is this idea that someday God's presence will be fully seen and present in this place and there will be nothing between us and him and we'll be worshiping him day and night in new creation. And the, one of the great uh, visions of new creation, of where this whole story is going of this world, is, uh, shows up in Isaiah 11 and talks about the cow and the bear grazing together. There's no enmity no, anything that you'd expect would be filled with hostility. People groups and animal groups that usually are at one another's throats are finally dwelling together in peace. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Uh, that's new creation. That's where we're going. And the, uh, um, the road there, the, the road to new creation uh, goes through some pretty difficult terrain. And that's what we're into and about this summer is exploring these ideas. As we get there, I, I'm recognizing that, um, you know, t today's sermon uh, is going to go into the book of Job. The book of Job is a really great place to talk about some of this stuff. It, all the themes are there that I've been mentioning so far in the book. So um, we're going to get into Job today, and I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of Job, a quick overview, because uh, I'm going to be talking about the whole book all 42 chapters today. I think we'll get out of here about 5.30, so hunker down. Um, oh, talking about Job, but then I'm going to zero in on the creation part, which is 38, chapters 38 through 42, which is, is where we get the creation theme. So I'm um, going to be doing that today. Uh, but as we do so, I'm recognizing that we, we do get into some difficult territory and today, I'm going to sort of dance around some of the difficult stuff. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Uh, but also, the main point of it all is that even, even if we do get challenged, even if our pridefulness does get stoked up by having really to look at creation for what it is, um, the main point here is that in order to do so, in order to get to new creation, we have to listen, learn to listen to the voice around us. So if you can stick with that thought... Uh, we'll, get, we'll get through it today. 
Um, so here we go. I love this picture. Uh, there are, there, there, a bunch of them are staring us down in all of their glory uh, in the animal world. Um, but I, like I said, to get to new creation and the idea of peace here, it's, it's treacherous terrain. And as we talk about, um, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about how we can tend to chain up and enslave the world around us. And Romans 8 tells us that's, what, that's the point. The world, is gr- the world is groaning in slavery, under our slavery, under our oppression. And that's God's weird plan to get it all back in order. Um, so, you know, as we talk about how, how we chain animals in the created world up, you're going to get triggered. Whether you're an environmentalist, you're going to get triggered. Whether you're a tycoon who runs a big oil corporation, you're going to get triggered, whether you're a vegetarian or a hunter, you're going to get triggered by especially what God has to say. And if you're a vegetarian, tycoon, environmentalist, I want to meet you. Um, But here's the thing, you know, how do we chain up the world? How do we put it in chains? And this is a hard thing. I've wrestled with this as I've been thinking through this series. It's oftentimes it comes in the form of using more than we need, using living, sentient, creatures more than we need. It's failing to restrict ourselves and our consumption of the living world around us. It's minimizing uh, the, uh, the created world in our mind in a way that helps us to sort of use it in, in, in coercive ways. So um, whether we're talking about fur or war practices or mass for- farms or products, whatever it is, uh, the challenge for us is to figure out how to help the created world find as much of its freedom as possible. So uh, as we get into this, I realize, I mean, all these thoughts come up, but what is it for you? I mean, I'm asking, I'm inviting you to think about this as we go through this. What is, I'm, I'm inviting us centrally to listen to the voice, and that's what we're doing here. But if this gets into sort of some of your behaviors and your patterns of shopping and living, good. But what is it for you? What does it mean for you to, let the world around you find its freedom. Okay, so uh, that's a bit of a preface here. So as we've talked about this so far, uh, Psalm 19 is, was where we started. Creation is testifying that God is patient. God is faithful. He's good to all. It's like the sun in his courses, the psalmist says. You can trust in God. Uh, we've talked about Romans 8 and listening to the groaning of creation as it's enslaved under our chains. Uh, and then we talked uh, a couple of, last week, a couple weeks ago, about the dawn of creation, about how it all began and how our job is to be stewards and wise caretakers. So this week we look at Job. Now, I, I don't know if you've seen this. This is going around the internet. This is like somebody's art in New Zealand or Australia or somewhere, and you can see it from space. <laughs> it's like some people think it's like beautiful and amazing and it's an honoring to the, the culture. Other people are like, this is like cosmic graffiti. Um, but here, here's, I, I show this to you because it's, it's the world, but it's also the 30,000 foot view. So I'm going to give you a bit of a 30,000 foot view of Job today and how this works and how creation theology works in Job. And every once in a while, I'm going to zero in on a toe and show you some details. So that's, that's, where, that's what we're about to do here. Uh, the final chapter of Job, here's Job. Well, that's not Job, but it's an idea of Job. Uh, Job is this book that's written hundreds and thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's a book about a guy who lived even longer, like in Abraham's day. Think of a guy in the ancient Near East, 
It's a book about him. It's, uh, it's, it, it, the, the whole book presents itself as um, a story about life and that suffering and uh, what do, how do we deal with suffering. It's, it, if you're looking for the, what do you, the people of God believe about suffering, you go to Job. Job is the book that gets us there. And so uh, it's a book about a man who has a lot of stuff and he loses it all. Uh, and then his wrestle with God and his friends and, and what kind of sense he can make about the world in his suffering. And then the final chapters of Job are God showing up to give an answer. It's like Job for 37 chapters puts God on trial, pointing his finger at him. And then God shows up in these final chapters to give an answer. And it's amazing. And the, the most important thing, I think, to, for this morning, to, to, to put, the most important point is that when God answers these deep emotional questions, these very raw, real questions about human suffering, he's not going to jump into human civilization and give examples from society. He's not going to even meet Job in his questions. He's going to bring Job almost as if you're comes to this 30,000-foot view of all of creation, he's going to point to the created world and say, if you want to know something about reality and suffering, listen to the animals. Listen to creation. And so that's our starting off point here. Now, Job is a wealthy man. Uh, he has seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep. Can you imagine that? Just imagine your mind, 7,000 sheep. But not only that, 3,000 camels. That's a lot of camels. 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and a lot of slaves. The, the book of Job starts out by saying, this man was the greatest of all men in the East. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned from evil. Now Satan comes along in the story right early and has this wager for God. He says, God, I bet you that Job only loves you because of all of his camels and sheep and slaves. If that was taken away, he would curse you. And God says, okay, bet on. Here's, this is my greatest man. He is, he's going to stay faithful to me. And so Satan comes down and has his, does his worst, and Job loses it all. He loses his flocks. He loses his wealth. He loses all of his children who die in various types of disasters. I mean, he loses it all. And Satan... Um, Satan's feeling pretty good about himself, but then uh, Job gives the perfect response. I don't know if you've ever read Job. It's like, you know, have you ever, has, like, has your mother ever um, said to you, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out of it. <laughs> it's kind of along those lines. That's kind of a, 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 a um, shifting of what Job says. Job says, naked I came into the world. And naked, I'll, I'll leave it. God gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's his perfect response. Can you imagine losing all of your wealth, all of your kids? God takes away. That's, that's, that's the perfect, perfect response to loss. But then, Joe, then, God, then Satan says, okay, I see he's, he's your servant. But I bet he only worships you now because he has his physical health. So God says, okay, you, you can have that too. And so Satan comes and however Satan does that, puts boils all over Job's skin. And he loses everything, He's, even his physical health. And uh, Job's wife is like, enough is enough. Why don't you just curse God now? And Job's like, comes back with the perfect answer again. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. Um, then Job's friends come into the picture. He has three friends. He's just sitting in ashes, grieving. His three friends come into the picture, and they start... Well, at first they do the right thing. They just sit in silence for seven days with Job, just grieving with him. That's, that's the right thing to do. If you're looking for what to do with someone who's lost a lot, the right thing to do is not say anything. Just be present. Um, but then his friends start speaking, and they start giving him answers. And, and the, 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 the more the dialogue goes for chapter after chapter after chapter, they're starting to say pretty nasty things to Job, like, you deserve this, and what did you do wrong? You must have done something wrong. And then Job's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything wrong. I've been blameless and upright. <coughs> and, it, and it gets pretty nasty. And Job, I believe, if you read the book well, uh, he starts to crack because of his friends, because of their wrong theology, their wrong ideas about God. He begins to crack. Um, and um, ultimately, at the end of the book, in chapter 42 here, God says, my wrath is against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God's like, here, here are these people spouting off great, beautiful theology, and God's like, my wrath is against them because they did not know me. And it reminds me of something Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And you get these cracks in our human pridefulness. And this is where we're going today. This is where we're getting to. Um, there is a way of using God and, um, and using the world that God is not up to. He's not, he's not having it. So um, here we go, deeper in, deeper in. Um, So basically, here's the point. Like Christianity, what we're doing here is not a game about who knows more about God. If you play that game, you've lost. It's about sincerity. It's about the long emotional struggle that we have with the creator to figure out why. Why the suffering? Why the bad stuff? Why the disappointments? Um, and struggling with the one who has dreams for us that are far better than our dreams for ourselves. It's that long emotional struggle with, with this kind of God. And ultimately, Job, Job kind of ends up losing, losing it. He says, ultimately, in chapter 7, he'll say this again. Why have you made me, God, your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my disobedience and take away my sin? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. And he's grieving, and he's saying things like, God, I feel like you're just having target practice with your arrows, and I'm your target. And that's where he, he slips. He loses. He loses the perfect response. But that's where we often are, aren't we? That's where we often end up in our suffering and our disappointment. It's in this space. And God is going to listen. And he's hearing and listening, and listening to Job. And he's going to step in. And he's going to say things like, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And the surface point of it all is this. God is wise. He's gonna, he's gonna go across his creation. Do you know where the snow comes from? Were you there when I put the bounds in for the sea? Where were, where were you? Can you, I, I was at camp once and I was, I did a, a, last summer I did a, a series on Job with like 12 year olds. And, uh, 
and at this point, when, when God shows up and he lists off all of creation, I had, I had them come up and act out the different animals that were coming out. So, you know, the lordly lion who, who's hungry. So one person, they were, they were lined up. I didn't tell them which animal they would be. And one person, I said, be a lion, they're a lion. And then I got to this one part, and there's this kid who was kind of like troublemaker during the week. And so I, had, I set him up for a little bit. And um, so I got there, and I said, okay, your turn. I said, where were, were you able to teach the mountain goat how to give birth? <laughs> so he's like, oh, yeah, be a birthing mountain goat, you know, like show us what that looks like. So anyway, God goes across all of, all of these um, wild places and things which Job has no control over. Um, and he's bringing up stars and seas and waters and light and snow and hail and the Pleiades and Orion you know, who put the, the constellations in the right place? Uh, the lion, the ravens, the birthing mountain goats, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the locust. God is going to be pointing out creation to Job to say, you want your answers, you're going to find them here. And it's going to be much deeper than you can expect. And, and, the, and the wider point is that God is wise. Look what he's made. Look at, look at the creation. He's wise and he's good and we can trust him. That's the surface point of it all. Um, but God's doing something more in all of this. And if, if we have ears to hear it, we're going we're gonna to see it. Uh, so God is, as he's bringing all of these animals and creative parts of creation up, he's disorienting Job. He's starting to circle, spin him around in circles. In his suffering, in his pain, in his question asking and finger pointing, God is starting to disorient Job. And he's disorienting Job for a point, for a reason, because Job's mind was too small. His, his heart, his spiritual heart had been hardened and, and it was too small. And of course, God never causes suffering in order to enlarge a human heart, but he can do that through suffering. He can open our mind, open our heart to something much bigger. Um, so he's pointing, he's going to point to the animals, point to the creation, and there's this beautiful mystical side of it, and he's going to say, Job, your, your mind is too small, your, your worldview is, your, good, your worldview about good and bad and righteous and wicked and culture and nature and who gets honor in the world and who gets contempt, um, it's, it's too small, and and the point, the, the point that we can enter into all this is through uh, Job's transformation, who he becomes after uh, all of this. So I'll finish off, well, it's going to be another four hours, but I'll finish off with, this, um, with this, um, this comparison of who Job began with. So here, here's Job. Here's how he began. Job 1. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feasts had run their course, Job would send and make sacrifices for them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings for each child. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. And so you get a picture. Yeah, he's righteous. He, he's sitting away from evil. But you get a picture of an obsessive religious father. You know, like, the idea is, like, his kids are, you know, they're partying a lot. They're, they're at each other's houses and they're partying a lot. And uh, they're not probably the, the most moral people. And when it, and he says... And when, it, um, when the feast had run their course, that's probably a nice way of saying when they all got clothed and sober. Um, he, every day he'd get up and offer sacrifices for each child. 
It's this obsessive, almost hysterical way of being religious, which says, unless I appease the God of the universe with these sacrifices, something bad will happen to my children. And he's faithful in that obsessiveness, and his children and his family lose it all anyway. Didn't work. Didn't work for, for Job. And God says, this way of being is too small. It's not big enough. Um, and so, this is where he's coming from. And God says, how do you get out of that? How do you get into something bigger? Listen to the voice of creation. So we start really here with the lion. He's gonna, God is going to pair a few teachings about animals which reflect some of Job and his friends' teachings earlier in the book. So Job and his friends, they bring up the lion as a few examples. And then God is going to point to the lion. And here's the difference. In Job 4... Uh, Eliphaz, the Temanite, I believe that's how you say it, um, was basically like, Job, um, you've sinned. All of this is going to be go wrong with you because you need to receive this suffering as penance. That's how life works. It's karma. You do bad, you got to get, get bad. Um, and we're all stuck in that wheel. And Job, or Job's friend says, I've seen those who plow sinfulness and sow trouble. Here it is, it's karma. They get sinfulness and trouble back. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. Here's Job's friend's idea of God, wrathful, consuming God, who is going to destroy you uh, for your troubles. And the roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Job's friend is saying, it's, all about wrath. God's wrath is the thing which defines creation. And even the bold lions are disposable under God's heavy hand. The lions can go. They, they're just like us, death destined for wrath. They're proud. They're scary. They're hunted. And off they go in God's wrath. Later on, uh, Job is like, bold as a lion, God, you hunt me. That's, he says that about God. So, Here's a hunter. The proud wild animals, later on, Job says, proud wild animals have not found the path to molten lava. The lion has not passed over that way. Even the greatest of the proud animals, Job said. And this is how he thinks of the lion. Contempt, something that's just disposable, worthy of contempt, just like us. And um, that's, that's, that's what he thinks of them. Now, when God comes into the picture, God is going to point to the lion as an example. He says this, this is God speaking. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetites of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covering? Gone is the God who could, couldn't care less about the lion. Gone is the God who is full of wrath and contempt. Gone is the proud, self-sufficient, lordly lion. In God's eyes, the lion is something to be cared for something to be fed, something to take care of. They crouch in their dens. They lie in their coverings. This is, um, this is God's picture. The lion's not lordly in God's eyes. The lion's dependent on sustenance, just like us. We must rely on God. And Job's like, look at this. Who, can you hunt the lion, the, pray for the lion? It's like, it's not about you. This, this whole thing going on, the drama is not about you. You're not the one providing food for the lion, are you? I am. I'm doing that. 
And God is not filled here with contempt for the lion. He wants to feed it. See the difference? Job's mentality, Job's friend's mentality compared to what God sees. It's different. It's a trans- transformation which happens. Now, okay, so the lion is one example. There's, there's so many examples here of different creatures God brings up. But I'll bring up this, this next one. The onager. I had to look that one up. The wild donkey. The donkey which lives out in the wilderness. Here's what um, Job's, Job says about the, uh, the wild donkey earlier. Like with the wild donkey in the desert, the wicked go out into their fold. Sorry, typos this morning. Um, who, I want to talk about the wicked and the wicked receiving God's wrath. Let's talk about the wild donkey. It's, they're just like each other, scavenging in the wasteland for their young. Hear this language, wasteland, nasty place. They reap in a field not their own and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering for cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for want of shelter. These are wicked that Job's talking about, but he's comparing them with the wild donkey way out in the God-forsaken wilderness. And uh, later on, Job says, the underclass, (laughs) it's a nice word, the underclass are driven out of society. They bray among the bushes. So for Job and his friends, the wild donkey is something to have contempt over. They're outcasts scavenging in the barren land with massive appetites. Um, but here comes God, Job 39. So now look, look at the wild donkey. Who has led the wild donkey to freedom, to sheer freedom? God's delighting not in their need to be in the city, but in their sheer freedom. That's what he loves. Who has loosed the bonds of the swift onager to which I have given the step for its home, the flat land for its dwelling place? It's scorn. It scorns the tumult of the city. It does not hear the shouts of the driver. It ranges the mountains as its pasture, and it searches after everything green. How different are these beasts than in Job's mind? Um, Job is just thinking about how great the city is in that barren wilderness. But now Job is realizing that the wilderness is not a wasteland. It's a place where God is, and he's providing and giving food and shelter, and he's, he's loving these creatures. So in Job, what happens? After God says all these things, Job says to God, I feel small. I have nothing to say to you back. And then God goes on to two more big animals, fire-breathing Leviathan, and, um, big hippopotamuses and alligators. Anyway, all that to say, um, Job's response is that he's small. He's gained an empathy. He sees God's creatures as God sees them. And something shifts. Something changes in Job's heart after this experience. He becomes a changed man by listening, by really listening to the voice of creation. Uh, the pathetic wild donkey becomes an animal, a creature of dignity. The drab wasteland out in the wilderness becomes a place of abundance and the presence of God. Job is not superior to these, to these animals. He's now seeing them in a more godly light. And here's the thing, one of the great lessons from this. If you cannot treat the created world with dignity, how are you going to create 
and treat with dignity the people whom you fear. Anytime you hear a politician or a leader or someone trying to gain superiority over one people group, they'll talk about the other people group as an animal. I have, I have, I've seen this over and over again. If you listen, listen carefully to politicians who, who, who have the heart of Job before his experience, they're going to speak of humans as animals. And if any time you hear a human speaking of another human as an animal, you know that people, someone has slipped off the rails of God's heart. Uh, we, we stop at that. We don't, call, we don't liken other people to animals, period. Um, and uh, if you can't treat creation with dignity, how are you going to treat humans that are not like you with dignity? So anytime you connect people with land, energy, development, minds, those who have ears will hear. We're off the rails of God's heart. If you can't see the sacredness of the marginalized animal, how are you going to exist in this society uh, being, a, being a voice for God? This is, this is where it gets us. And we move from ignorance and domination as our way of being into sincere compassion for one another. We're no longer conquering and controlling. We're a small part of God's bigger story. So here's what happens to Job. At the end of his life, he has this experience with the created world, and here's what happens to Job. On the surface, he gets all of his money back. His kids back, he has more kids, his money, he's rich, his family's around. Yeah, that's nice for him, right? Let's listen deeper. He gets back everything, but not everything. He doesn't get back the children he lost, that's for sure. He'll never, he would never get that back until the, the new creation. But when you get the story of Job at the end of chapter 42, it's no longer rising early to, to sacrifice for his children, offering in an obsessive way. He's not doing that anymore. He doesn't need to do that um, uh, to think that um, God could love him. He's not this obsessive patriarch, like obsessed with control and fear uh, and trying to control his kid's faith. He's loosened his grip on this. Um, there's finally, you get this picture that like there's finally freedom in Job's family. Are you part of a family or know a family that if you're part of it, there's not really, really freedom there because of an obsessive patriarch or matriarch? Job's changed. That's, that's there's, he, there's the, the family is finally free. He has more kids, and the book ends with naming his daughters. He names three of his daughters with beautiful detail. You didn't, you didn't really hear about the daughters too much before, but now Job is transformed, and he names the daughters with endearing detail. And the women of the, the family of those era, they weren't supposed to get inheritance. The, the men got the inheritance. The women were to fend for themselves with the men they found. But the book and the third to last line saying, Job gave his daughters an inheritance. He's a changed man. His heart is softened. He's not controlling. He's going against the patriarchal society. Um, and if we want the same sort of movement in our life, we will go through hard things. Uh, and God will be with us. And if we have ears to hear, and look at the creation around us. We will get through that transformed like Job. Now, okay. Backing up here now, just finishing off. Um, I'm saying this. 
If we want a similar kind of transformative experience in our faith, we will get out there among these creatures and we will look and see and hear them for who they are and what they really are, not for what we assume they're like. And I'm like terrified now because I am afraid of wolves. And it's like, I suppose I'm going to have to become a wolf tracker. <laughs> uh, all of those obsessive fears need to melt away in God's created order. So here, how do we get out? How do we get out among the wild things? Just a few practical examples. I'm going to keep encouraging us to get out there and to meet the living God in his true cathedral. Uh, go do some stargazing. Get an astronomy guide and, and get under the stars, under the Pleiades, under Orion. Do some deer tracking or wolf tracking if you're brave. Um, just walk. Go for walks. If you don't walk, walk. Take an hour of your TV time at night and walk. Because when you get out there and walk, you, you're just among, among the wild places. Go, go to the really wild places like Quetico. It's two hours away and it's easily accessible if you have someone who knows what they're doing with you. Um, visit a farm around you. I love this last idea, shrink your lawn. I know a few people in church are shrinking their lawn by putting other things in it that grow and you use less gas and, um, and you get to see, you get your hands dirty and watch the intricacies of creation go around you. The challenge, get out there. Get out among the wild places, and the type of transformation that happens to Job will happen to you too. So, last thing here. I don't know if you know Wendell Berry. He's a poet, uh, of beautiful poet of, uh, um, of the created order. He's a farmer in Kentucky. And I love this poem, and I'm going to read it to us as a close. When despair grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Sorry, Dave, I've used your. There you go. So every week, friends, we come to this table um, with broken bread and juice to symbolize Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. Uh, the world is crying out to tell us of our Savior, of the one who came into this world and bore our sins so that we might be transformed. We might come from obsessive patriarchs or whatever we are into transformed, faithful beings, warm in God's presence. And so every week Jesus says that it's a hard road. Transformation is not easy. You go through lots of rough terrain. So come and remember that I did it first. I've walked this path before you. I've, um, I've, I've carried the heaviest burden in the, in the wildest places. So we take a piece of bread and we dip it and we take it into ourselves as a prayer over and over again. God, let me stay with you. Let me remember you. Uh, so uh, I invite you with whatever God has spoken to you today, I invite you forward to the table and to join in the, the meal. So the table here is set and everyone here is welcome.